Today, right at the beginning, I, I've been thinking recently about how seasons of life, like not all seasons of life are created equal. Can we agree on that? Perhaps you've noticed that there are some seasons that are, have a special significance, and maybe we don't realize that as we're going through them, but we see that as we look back on them. Other times, uh, we're keenly aware that we are in the midst of a pivotal moment in our lives. And yet, as we look back, and for some of you that maybe tilt a little older than I am, I, I, I just went through a, a pivotal birthday or a mile marker birthday, a 40th birthday, and it caused me to reflect on some things. And to, so I've been thinking about this for a while, and I've been thinking about those that, that maybe have, have done their 50th or their 60th or their 70th or their 80th birthday, and you look back on the whole of life, and, and you see that that each section, each pivotal moment becomes a paragraph in your life story, you know, that you could relate to somebody, you know, in three or four or five sentences. And it's fascinating to consider how, how a, a season of life or a mile marker event in life that's so significant in the moment becomes a paragraph in the overall story of our lives. And so I've been reflecting on that a little bit. And there have been some times, and perhaps you've noticed, uh, that some of the most significant seasons of life involved loss or involved trial or involved a difficulty of some sort. And one of the wonderful, wonderful things about being a part of a community of faith, especially for me, this community of faith with the emphasis on being a family of families, and I'm really seeking to to cultivate that environment, is that when you go through those seasons of life, whether they're good or bad, you don't go through them alone. When you're on the mountaintop, you're not alone on the mountaintop. When you go through the valley, you're not alone in the valley. And the, the joys are multiplied and the sorrows are divided by the people around us. And so I was thinking about different churches that we've been a part of, uh, especially in leadership roles. And, and so for me, ministry started in a large church in Casper where we had been lay people. We had been a couple that I guess people used to say they sat so close together we couldn't tell if we were Siamese twins. When we first started going to church, like we could have shared a seat, I guess. I didn't know that. I wasn't aware of that, but some people shared that with us. And then we started into leadership positions, and we started hosting a small group, and started serving in projection, and, and started teaching Sunday school classes, and volunteering in various areas, and eventually discerned a call to ministry, and were called into ministry in that church, uh, to the point that we were very, very well known in a very large church. And so when we miscarried, our second miscarriage, we had Keaton and Ryan, and then we miscarried twins, which was extremely difficult in its own right, but sometime later we miscarried uh, kind of a midterm, much farther along and, and much harder on us. And the way that that church surrounded us in that moment, I mean, people came to stay with our kids when we had to go to the hospital to, to deal with, with everything, and I don't think we cooked for a month, maybe six weeks. I mean, there's just people, overwhelming amount of support. And then when we were in West Virginia, it was kids again, only in a different setting. Uh, Owen's first trip to the, to the emergency room and first hospitalization with breathing issues came on a very big weekend at our church. We were going to be packing about 35,000 meals to ship to Nicaragua that would then be distributed on a mission trip that summer. And so it was a really big weekend, people coming in from out of town, the church, 100 volunteers were signed up. And I remember going in on Friday night, and when it became evident we were going to be there for a little while, the staff just said, you don't worry about a thing. 
we've got this. And the leadership came together, and they, they just let us be a family together and not have me pulled away in that moment. And then on the tail end of that, there were the meals and there were the expressions of care that were so important. And there was another one in West Virginia when Carson went over backwards and gashed his head open on a return air vent, you know, just totally random thing that kids do. And he's bleeding all over the place. And it's the one of the two times I went golfing twice in three years in West Virginia. That happened when I'm clear up some canyon, no cell service. I don't even know it's really happening. But Heather puts it out on Facebook, and people from the church stop what they're doing and rush over to be with the kids in the ER and to provide, uh, you know, the hands and feet of Christ um, to us in that moment. And, you know, in Indiana, same thing, community group, neighbors that were just unbelievably caring and compassionate to us. They painted our house for us when we got in. We moved into a really nice house with just really ugly colors throughout, like, you know, HGTV gone wrong. Okay, it was bad. But they came, and they, they spent a weekend repainting our house, and they helped us move when it was time to move. And, and then I think about Linwood, and just the three years that we've been here, how many times from the very first, like, the day we moved into our house, we were incredibly blessed. And then when we've gone through our own difficulties, when Owen was in the ICU for four days over Christmas vacation 2019, people came to visit us in the hospital, and when you could still do that, and people brought us meals, and people prayed for us, and, and it's just been amazing to think about some of those most difficult, and how much more difficult they would have been if we hadn't had people surrounding us, and loving us, and caring for us. And so I want you to think about sometimes in your life, some, some pivotal seasons in your life, and, and were, there, were you surrounded by a group of people or maybe you felt more alone during those times. Just think through that and, and reflect on that because we're going to be talking about caring for each other today, if you haven't figured that out. Um, as we continue our series, A Firm Foundation, where we've been looking at God's Word, God's whole Word as a firm foundation for every part of our lives, that, that God's Word, His revelation to us is there is no firmer foundation for a life, for a family, for a church, for a community, for a nation or for the world, that, that what He has revealed to us and the way that He has designed life to work, that when we make that our firm foundation and we center our lives on His Word, things go very, very well. And when we don't, things go very, very poorly. And we can see that over and over in the Old Testament narrative, and, and, and we can see that throughout human history. So we started with a message titled, Centering Our Lives on the Word which happens to be one of our core values here at Linwood, to, to not just visit our, the Word of God once a week for an hour or once or twice a month for an hour, but to center our lives on God's Word, to spend time in God's Word every single day. And then last week we looked at the difference a dad makes and how foundational parenting is and how foundational God as our Heavenly Father can be in our lives. Um, but today we're looking at caring for each other, which happens to be the second of three core values. We'll look at each of those core values in this series. Um, but today we're looking at this one and at caring for each other, which we define here at Linwood as willingly being the hands and feet of Christ to those in need, both inside our congregation and outside our congregation, that we choose. When we say that we really value caring for each other, we define that as that we will willingly be the hands and feet of Christ to meet the needs of others, both within our congregation and the world around us. And we say that that's a core value because it's foundational. When we talk about our mission to reach people for Christ, to give them a place to belong, and to help them grow in their faith, 
caring for each other is a big part of reaching people for Christ, both caring for people within the church, that's where that sense of belonging develops, but meeting the needs of those outside our church is one of the main ways that we do outreach and evangelism and and express our mission in this world that we would become as that mission is accomplished, the vision of a family of families would become a reality. And families care for each other. Healthy families care for each other. And so I've witnessed this over and over in my three years at Linwood. Linwood is, is one of the more caring churches that I'm aware of, certainly that I've been a part of, that, that really is foundational to what we do. And so individually and, and, and through the church as a whole, we've seen people going above and beyond. From the moment I got here, there were individuals and families that went out of their way to make me feel welcome, to make my family feel welcome. The church as a whole has done this over and over. And then I've seen it in the lives of others. I can tell you, nobody puts on a funeral lunch like Linwood puts on a funeral lunch. And in in that moment of loss, in that season of loss, to have a dozen or so people coming together to serve your family and to create an atmosphere of fellowship and connection where you don't have to worry about anything, that's such a tangible expression of love and of care, and to go way above and beyond what would be expected. And so, interestingly enough, when we read the Old Testament, when we read about God's law, when we read about how He designed things to work and how He set things in motion to work, this was His plan from the beginning. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all his, your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is much like it, Jesus said, to love your neighbor as yourself. That God's original design, that we would have a vertical relationship with Him, that we would have devotion to Him, to His will, to His ways, to a relationship with Him. And then after that vertical relationship is in place, now we would have a horizontal relationship with our brothers and sisters, with the people around us, with the world around us. And that we would be loving God and loving each other. And that in that vertical relationship, horizontal relationship, as we care for each other, every need would be met. That all of our spiritual, emotional identity needs would be met in our relationship with God and that His abundant provision in our lives through the horizontal network of relationships would meet every need that we have. So when someone's going through a difficult time, there are those that have an abundance and can share with Him. And this is the way that the, that the community of faith that we know as the ancient nation of Israel, it was designed to work, and that all the little villages, there would be offerings that would come in and that would help the poor, and they would support those who were widows and orphans, and the law provided for all of that and prescribed all of that. And when the people did it, it worked really, really well. Like, it wasn't tried and found wanting, it was left untried or abandoned and departed. And so, we see that the Old Testament has often been described as the story of a covenant-making God and His covenant-breaking people. And so, we see God entering into covenants with human beings, not because He has to, but because He wants to, as an expression of His love and His plan of salvation for the whole world. And then we see the humans breaking that covenant and not living up to the law, not upholding the law. And they leave Him for other gods and other ways of life, like the people around him. And so when the narrative that drives the majority of the Old Testament begins where we were last week with Israel, with Jacob, whose name gets changed to Israel, and the twelve tribes of Israel, which were the twelve sons of Jacob, when we see that, we see a cycle begin. 
And as they leave Egypt in the book of Exodus, God has just brought the most powerful nation in the world to its knees. It is lying in shambles, and they have all the gold in their pockets, right? As they leave, and he leads them across the the Red Sea in this amazing display of his superiority and his supremacy. And yet within a few weeks, Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and the people are making an image with the gold that they could worship that. And they come up to the borders of the promised land and even though they had just seen God bring the most powerful nation in the world to its knees, they're afraid to go in to the land and take the land which God has said go and take. And so there's a faithless generation that departs from the Lord and they die in the desert. And a new leader is raised up, and Joshua leads the people 40 years later into the promised land to take the promised land. And yet, right at the tail end of Joshua, even as he's giving his sort of commencement address, his final speech, you know, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Within a few chapters, the people have turned away from God, and they've gone after the, the, the false gods of the people around them. And this cycle of God delivering people and them being faithful for a little while and then departing from God and experiencing disobedience and defeat until they are completely distraught and they cry out to the Lord and He rescues them again in this cycle or a downward spiral as I wrote about in the the digital bulletin. always has a little devotional. I wrote about this, this spiral that we see going downward. And that becomes much of the the Old Testament is just this story over and over again and how heartbreaking it is. And yet, one of the true bright spots in the Old Testament narrative is the book of Ruth. And so that's where we're going to spend some time today, because the book of Ruth, it really stands out in this overall narrative. And we're told right at the very beginning of the book of Ruth, it's right after the book of Judges, we're still in the time of the Judges, we're told. So we're in the time before Israel had a king, before the prophet Samuel came onto the stage, after Joshua and his generation have passed away, and the Judges are leading Israel on this spiritual roller coaster back and forth in their their time with God. That Ruth, as 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 a story, as its own encapsulated story, becomes a real bright spot. And I think the reason for that is that every major character in the book of Ruth goes above and beyond, is is loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and is loving each other, loving their neighbor, loving their family, loving people as they love themselves. And so we see this lived out, and we see Ruth as this tremendous breath of fresh air in an otherwise somewhat depressing narrative. And so to sort of summarize, the book opens, and we're introduced to Elimelech, who is Ruth's father-in-law, essentially. She's not in the picture yet. Elimelech and his wife Naomi have to leave the area because of a famine. So they leave their home, which is near Bethlehem in the nation of Israel. They cross the Jordan, they turn south, and they settle in the area of Moab. So they're foreigners in a foreign country. And they set up shop there, so to speak. They have sons. Their sons get married. But along the way, Elimelech dies. So now Naomi, Elimelech's wife, is a widow, but at least she has these two sons. And the sons get married and they have daughters. But or she has daughters in law, sorry. The sons get married. Naomi now has a daughter in law. Ruth is one of those daughters in law. But the sons die. And so now she's a widow and she doesn't have sons. And this is a very precarious 
position. There's no social security. There's, there's no, she's in a foreign land, so there's not family nearby that can help her. Her sons have died, and she's in her old age. And so she says to her daughter-in-law, to each daughter-in-law, go back to the family, go back to your household, go back to your fathers. Perhaps you can marry again, but you can't stay with me. I've got to go back to Israel and hope that someone there will help me, hope that someone there will care for me. And so that kind of brings us up to the first passage that I want to look at, which comes in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. So Naomi has just sent her daughters back to their families, and the first daughter-in-law has said, okay, giving her mom, mother-in-law a hug, and headed home. But here's what Ruth says in verse 16. She replies, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so this is really significant. Ruth is willing to leave behind everything she knows. She's willing to leave behind her family. She's willing to leave behind her, her homeland, which represents so much more than geography. It represents her way of life. She's willing to leave behind her religion and adopt a new religion, and she makes this commitment and this vow to be with Naomi and to be Naomi's family, essentially, as Naomi returns. And so it was really significant, and it got me thinking, you know, it's pretty reasonable to assume Naomi must have been good to Ruth, right? Like, they must have had a strong relationship, and perhaps even that Elimelech and Naomi had lived in such a way that the people around them wanted to know more about them, or that Ruth would have this kind of devotion. There had to be character. There had to be integrity. There had to be a willingness to love and to serve and to care for the people around them, or else why on earth would Ruth go back with Naomi? So it's reasonable to presume that they had been salt and light, that they had been what they were to be, that they had lived in such a way that the people around them recognized that there was something different about Elimelech and Naomi. There's something different about the way that they live and act, and it might be interesting to see where they came from and to go back with them. And so Ruth makes this commitment And they head back, and they arrive in Bethlehem, where Naomi was from, where Elimelech was from, and it told that the the town was stirred up by her arrival, and that it was right at the beginning of the barley harvest, which becomes very, very significant, and it kind of introduces us into an Old Testament concept called gleaning, which applies perfectly to what we're talking about here, that if you owned land and you owned fields and you went to harvest those fields, the principle of gleaning, which was part of God's law was that you didn't harvest right up to the edges, and you didn't go back and pick up what might have been dropped, that you left some on the edges and you left what might be dropped for those that don't have land, that can't get hired out, and that are in need of, of food so that they could come along behind and pick up the leftovers and glean from the, the fields. And so that becomes very significant because Naomi sends... Ruth to one of Boaz's fields. And Boaz loves God, and Boaz follows the principle of gleaning. And Boaz even goes so far as to tell his servants, leave a little extra behind so that 
they can pick this up and they can have their needs met. And Boaz becomes a really, really important thing, and it's kind of fascinating. You know, the book is called Ruth, but Boaz serves as a, what we call in the Old Testament scholarship, they call it a type for Christ. He becomes somebody who points us to Jesus, who exemplifies certain characteristics of Jesus. And we're introduced to Boaz as Naomi's kinsman redeemer. And this isn't something that we practice so much here today, but in the Old Testament law, in the Old Testament way of being, if a man died and left behind a widow and orphans, and there was no male in that lineage, then that man's property, which at the time included his wives and his children, I know the Bible doesn't endorse this so much as it reports it, and that's important to understand, but they could be redeemed by his next closest male living relative. And so Boaz becomes a kinsman redeemer, and we'll learn more a little bit about that um, as we go, but he shows us a picture of Christ. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a part of the family of God, then Jesus Christ is your kinsman redeemer. Though you were an orphan and you were separated from God by your sin and you were destined to eternity apart from him, Jesus came in and redeemed you. So you're no longer deemed over to a life apart from God, an eternity apart from God. You're now redeemed into the family of God. And so this is the gospel playing out before our lives in this Old Testament narrative in a really powerful and beautiful way. And such that John would say at the beginning of his gospel in John 1.12 that to whoever believed in his name, whoever received Christ, he gave them the right to be called children of God. He brings them into the family of God. He gives the fatherless a home. He becomes their father. And so that kind of brings you up to an interaction that we see between Ruth and Boaz, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time and really kind of camp out here. In Ruth chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, we see Boaz interacting with Ruth after Naomi has sent Ruth to go and to glean from the fields. And so Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. And so right at the outset, Boaz, by calling her daughter, he identifies that we're, rel- we're relatives. I'm a relative of Naomi, and by extension, you're, you're part of that tribe, part of that clan. And he goes above and beyond in showing kindness to her. He doesn't just run her off. He doesn't just treat her with neutrality. He actually blesses her. He extends provision to her. He extends protection to her. And he's caring for the needs that she and Naomi have. And he's recognizing this. And it really catches Ruth's attention. In verse 10, at this, Ruth bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. And so her question to Boaz and then Boaz's response 
kind of has this really powerful interplay. Like, she recognizes, I'm a foreigner. Why are you having anything to do with me? It would be understandable if you would take care of the needs of one of your own people, but I'm a foreigner. I come from a faraway place. And, you know, Israel and Moab didn't really get along all that well, so there's, there's racial tensions implied with this. And Boaz looks past all of that because Ruth's reputation has preceded her. He's heard about what Ruth has done. She has shown kindness. She has gone above and beyond for her mother-in-law, Naomi, which is Boaz's relative, and so Boaz is going to go above and beyond for Ruth and Naomi, and he's going to look past the fact that she's a foreigner and see the character and the quality that she brings to the mix. And, and so he continues his response to her with basically a prayer. He's saying, he's speaking blessing over her, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And I love Ruth's response. She says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. And so to kind of summarize those last two verses there, Boaz speaks blessing over Ruth in the name of the Lord, the capital L, Lord, Yahweh, He speaks blessing over her, but she entreats Boaz's continued favor as her Lord, little L. And and it highlights, and this is what jumped off the page to me this time through, she doesn't really know the Lord yet. Ruth doesn't know the Lord yet, but she knows Boaz. And Boaz is representing to Ruth how the Lord works, how he cares for his people, how his people are supposed to care for each other. And so Boaz represents the kindness of God to her. And so she doesn't know the Lord that he's speaking about, but she knows who's standing in front of him. And she knows who has already been gracious to her and who has spoken kindly to her and who has provided for her. And this becomes a really powerful reminder of this principle that just keeps coming back around these last couple of months in, in everything that I'm reading. And I shared it in the Living and Loving series, this quote from Charles Spurgeon that the world doesn't read the Bible. They read us. The world doesn't read the pages of Scripture. They read the lives of Christians. And Ruth doesn't know the God of Israel yet, but she knows how Boaz has treated her. And the world doesn't know God necessarily, but they know us. And we become ambassadors for Christ, Paul said, when we serve and when we are generous and when we are kind and people have an opportunity to see God's love for them in the way that we treat them and treat each other. And they either want to be a part of that or they say, you know, no thanks. I think I'm good. And so this becomes really, really important. Caring for each other is not just extra credit. It's, it's foundational to what we are called to be as the people of God from the very beginning. This was how God had designed it. And so if you read the rest of the story, which I would encourage you to do, you can read the book of Ruth in 20 minutes. I wished it was longer because Judges was so depressing and Samuel is going to be a roller coaster as well. I'm like, I could use a little more Ruth, Lord. But you just have to read it. You have to read it for yourself. Read it and, and ask God, what's he saying to you? Because Boaz and Ruth end up connecting and be, you know, becoming engaged. Boaz recognizes that there is a kinsman redeemer that is closer to Naomi than he is. And so he goes and he does everything above board with witnesses and everything. And he says, look, Naomi's back. Her husband has died. Somebody needs to redeem Elimelech's field. By the way, it's going to come with a widow and an orphan. Do you want it? He says, no, I think I'm good. 
I, don't, I think I'll decline because I don't want to take on all that baggage. And then Boaz is able to step in and redeem the field and bring Naomi and then Ruth into his family. He ends up marrying Ruth. And it has a really, really happy ending. If you read all the way into the New Testament, at the beginning of Matthew, when there's that big long list of names, right? You're going to see Boaz and Ruth in the lineage of Christ. In the lineage of Christ. So Boaz and Ruth become Jesus's great, 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 great grandparents. It's like 13 or 17. 17 generations between Ruth and Boaz and Jesus. And this underscores our bottom line today that the kingdom wins when we care for each other. The kingdom wins in small ways and in bigger ways than we can ever imagine when we care for each other. When Ruth chooses to care for Naomi, the kingdom wins. When Boaz chooses to care for Naomi and Ruth, the kingdom wins wins. And when we care for others, we have an opportunity to show them God's love. Maybe even when it matters the very most. And that's why Jesus talked about this so much. That's why the very last commandment that he gave when the New Testament begins and the new covenant begins and he says, one command, love one another. Love one another. And what does he say? By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then Paul picks this up. He talks about us being ambassadors for Christ, being ministers of reconciliation. Paul casts a vision for a community that the New Testament church would be of, of love and of caring for each other and of meeting the needs of others, both within that community and outside that community. So when there were plagues in the ancient world and everybody ran to the hills, the Christians stayed and they cared for the people that were in need. And when there were famines and nobody had enough, the, the Christians shared what they had with the people that were in need. And James talks about this really strongly in his letter in James chapter 2. He says, don't just be hearers of the Word and so deceive yourselves. Be doers of the Word. Because when we're doers of the Word, then people can become seers of the Word in action. And so when people can't see Jesus, when people can't see God, when they don't know Him, they can see us. They can know us. And the question becomes, what will they see when they look at our families? What will they see when they look at Linwood? What will they see when they look at the church, the capital C church around the world? Will they see people caring for each other? Will they see people representing God's love to each other in powerful and intangible ways? Will they see love and compassion and mercy and grace and patience and the fruit of the Spirit lived out in our lives? I hope so. Because that's how God's grace gets to shine the brightest when it matters most. When somebody's in their own significant season, is there somebody there to extend a hand? Is there somebody there to care for them? Is there somebody there to be the hands and feet of Jesus? That's why this matters so very much. Now, I told the first service, this is one where there's kind of a pat on the back that goes with this, like Linwood does better at this than most churches I know, but I still want to encourage you to apply this personally to your own life, and I came up with a kind of a dangerous prayer that you might pray, that, that God would bring somebody across your path in the next seven days that you could meet a need in their life. And I'll up the ante a little bit because you came to the second service, and I had thought to, or the time to think about this, it may be somebody that would be a foreigner. 
not in your own family necessarily, not somebody that looks and acts like you, but that God would bring across your path somebody that you could meet a need in their life on behalf of Him and the incredible need that He has met in your life. So I want to encourage you to pray that way. And as we close, I'm always encouraging you to, to take a step of faith, to, to respond in faith to what you've heard. And that would be a great way to respond in faith to this message, be to ask God to put somebody in your path. And then if it happens, send me an email. I'd love to hear that story of how you were able to meet a need in the life of somebody. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the firm foundation that it represents in our lives. And we thank you for this wonderful story of your grace, for this picture of the gospel lived out in front of us. We thank you for the opportunities that you will bring across our paths in the next seven days to meet the need that somebody has. And especially, Lord, if we would, we would have eyes to see, there may be somebody who doesn't look or act or, or think or vote like us, but that has a need and that we can be the hands and feet of Christ in their lives. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear your spirit. Give us hands and feet that are eager to do your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.